beaming from Pacific Junction Hotel to Earth. Girth. You know, I've been interviewed on the radio before, and I always... Um, I'm just adjusting. You keep talking. Yeah, yeah. I always feel like I sound different than I want to. You know what I mean? It's really hard to represent yourself well. To, sometimes. But, like, just even to articulate your ideas and stuff, or...? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it's a problem of articulation, and other times it's just, like... Um, when I was when I was super young, especially, it was really hard to not just be um, either like too excited and then not able to think straight, or you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Just like silly kind of uh, letting nerves get in the way of things. And is it? Are you still you still nervy now though, right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it gets better. I don't know if it will if it goes away. I think for some people it, it does, and for other people maybe not. I don't know. I'll let you know in 50 years. Okay, we'll do another interview in 50 years. <laughs> yeah, perfect. But are you, you get nervy like when you have an opening, like in, like you have one on September 11th, right? So Oh, it's on... The 10th? 10th? I think it's the 10th. 10th, yeah. So do you get nervy for that? Yeah, I get nerves. I mean, I definitely less than, than before. Um, but no, there's always a certain amount of nerves because the opening is... Um, I mean, this time it's a bit different because I'm from here, I'm from Toronto, but I haven't been living here for a few years. And so I'm... I'm nervous, but I'm super excited because I'm going to see a lot of people who I really love. Whereas at most openings, you see all the people you really love, but you see them often. Mm -hmm. And so then it, it is kind of more nerves, and it's usually at a time when you're super exhausted because you just finished putting together the show. Yeah. Whereas I had to finish all that stuff a week and a half ago to get it shipped here in time. So You're now chilling. Yeah, so now it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Are you, is the nerves also just how the, the work is going to be received? Or is that, like, it's just more... No, yeah, of course that factors into it. Like, I want... Um, I really like the work, and so I hope that the work... That other people will understand something about it that um, that they can at least find interesting or other people will like it. But it, it's not... It's more like particular... There are particular people. I have particular friends who have played maybe, like, a mentor role or whose work I really like. So it's like, if those five people like it, that's awesome. It's not like needing, you know what I mean? Like if, um, so if a commercial newspaper is like, I don't get it, and I don't know what it's doing here, I feel like, well, that's okay, but maybe it wasn't for you. Yeah. Like uh, maybe you would rather go to Ikea to buy your artwork, <laughs> okay. and that's totally fine. Like yeah. th there's a space for what you like, I'm sure, and maybe this isn't it. So it's like there are particular people who I'm like more invested in their um, their review uh, than, yeah. That does that answer the question? Yeah, I guess so. Because it's almost in a way you've um, you've cu curated your audience. Then you kind of just selected it, and then you kind of know what you want, and then. As long as you kind of get the approval from them, everything else is going to be all good. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think um, I think there are always a few people who are like a touchstone where I feel like I know that they are um, thinking about some of the same issues as I am or are invested in the same histories or just like this. Or I just really like them and I like the things that they like usually. And so I feel like, oh, if they get it, I think I'm doing something right. But I mean, it's easy to be like, and I don't care about the rest. Yeah. That's, that's not true. I, of course I want people to like it. And I feel like um, sometimes when a work is something that like uh, someone who isn't like a contemporary art buff, but who just likes things in the world and is kind of like open and thinking about things, if that person can like it and uh, someone who's like super invested in like art can like it and then someone who like usually doesn't care about anything... Well, that's really an accomplishment, too, when you can kind of cover a range. 
Yeah, you can connect with all those different people. Yeah, so that's that's like a I'm not poo pooing that. That's a pretty cool. No, that thing. is pretty neat. Yeah, it's similar to music, right? Because you you write a three minute pop song or something in your basement or in your studio, mm-hmm. and then you put it out there, and then all of a sudden it connects, and everyone like when they play it live, everyone sings along and knows it, and yeah, putting on a mixtape for girls, and you know what I mean? <laughs> it takes a a life of its own. I really hope someone puts my drawing on a mixtape for girls. Yeah, see, wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> if a few people can get extra dates from this exhibition, that would be fantastic. All right. So we'll have to definitely follow up and then see if that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll let you know. Explain um, what the concept is, because uh, this is what we're why you're here. So you have this opening on September 10th. Yes. Uh, so explain the what the what uh, where the inspiration was and what the concept is of the show. So there's a, there's a video... And then there's a separate body of work as well in the exhibition. Uh, the video is called Something in the Way. So it takes the same title as the Nirvana song from like the 90s. Mm-hmm. And um, so for that work, the song is playing and the screen of the video is black. And then words are appearing on the screen that are all taken from songmeanings.com. Have you ever heard of that website? Yep. So it's like when you're looking for lyrics, you can look it up on that site. And then in the comments, there's this huge thread of, like, what the song really means. And mm-hmm. so it's all these intense Nirvana fans being like, um, the song is about when he lived under a bridge. And then other fans being like, that's common folklore. He never lived under a bridge. Right. But at the same time, they're trying to decode, like, um, decode what the song is about. So there's a line in the song that says, um, and the animals I've caught have all become my friends. And it's like, that means... That he's like whatever, right? So like it's like oh the something or other is like a Titan tourniquet, or they're like decoding what it is, and so you're reading this as the song is playing and as he's singing those words, and so sometimes it's people seriously, I mean the whole all of the text are people seriously trying to decode what what he's saying and what he's doing in that song, and then some of the text is also people arguing with each other. Because they know the real Nirvana, correct, and what's going on. They're like, the number one fan. Yeah, but. Part of the impetus behind that work is it reminds me very much of the way that we try to decode artwork. Like when you're a student in school, you have to have critiques. And so you and your peers will talk about a work and like how to decode what it is and what it's about and what it's doing and if it's working or not. And then like especially when you go out into the world, you see work and you try to do that. And when you're in a group of peers who are also doing that, it doesn't feel as silly. But if you were to tape it and play it, it's really silly the way that we try to make meaning of anything. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like music is one instance of that and work is another. And so it's just kind of like playing with that. But it is. It's just like the example I just used a few minutes ago. Somebody will write a pop song for three minutes and put it out there. And then somebody will put it on a mixtape for a girl or like they'll attach some sort of significance to it. And sometimes it's completely like way off. Yeah, and it and it's funny. That's the other thing. A lot of the, I think it's really funny. I think the video <laughs> is really funny, and a lot of the things that people are saying, are really really funny. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think people are really funny. Yeah. And that's kind of, for me, that's one of the threads between those two bodies of work. So the second body of work is called synopsis, and I think it's also pretty funny. Um, it made me chuckle. There's a couple. Did of it? Them. Yeah. Yeah, they're really, uh, so. It's, it's similar in a lot of ways. So this is another work that works with found text from an uh, online source. So you know the IMDb, Correct. which is the Internet Movie, Movie Database. There you go, yeah. 
And it's one of like the most popular online film databases if you just need a little bit of like biographical info or whatever. But there's also this section where you click, um, uh, what is it called? Parental it's like advisory. A, yeah. And so it's a user generated parental advisory. So anyone can add to it and many people do. And the, I started noticing years ago that the, the user generated advisory was really funny and it would create these really funny um, vignettes of these films. But unintentionally funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are really serious. They're trying to tell you how to keep your kids safe. Right. But then there'll be things that are like, the word gay used meant to be happy. Yeah. Like, don't worry. <laughs> they meant happy, but that word is in there. Yeah. FY. And, and so it's really funny, but it also is very telling about the culture in which it was made. Yeah. Like you can really um, feel something about the hangups of North America by what's listed and what's not or how it's listed and how it isn't. But it's, yeah, it's also very, very funny. You had one, I can't remember which film it was, um, but one was like, uh, there's like a naked statue. Yes. Right? And yeah. it's like, it's a statue. It's fine. It's not, <laughs> totally doesn't fine. count as nudity. That's, that's I know it guess. might be a wang or a boob, <laughs> but it's like, <laughs> it was like, it's fine. You know what I mean? You're not going to get corrupted. You're not going to like start buying Hustler or like. Yeah. And they become, so I'm, something I'm interested in is uh, concrete poetry and like the, I, I'm not a poetry buff by any means, but I really like that kind of work. So that's like poetry that. Oh, it's it's day has been it looks like done it. for a while. But but that was poetry that was more about the uh, like the form than the actual poetry, like than the words. So yeah. it was um, more like visual poetry or like sound. The, yeah. And so this I feel like this sort of is taking off of that where it's it's a um, I thought of it when I was first making the texts as a kind of poetry, but where the. Um, it wasn't the act of being uh, poetic with language that was as important as something else. Yeah, so so I actually did a book of synopses. That was when I was a grad student. I just I just finished my grad work. Yeah, two two years ago. High five. <laughs> but it, I still feel like just yeah. Anyway, my the it's project. Back to school sales now. Oh my goodness, the lines are nuts. Yeah. I was anyways yes, but I so I finished the book synopsis for that for that grad degree um just as i was finishing i was finishing the book and then i did a kickstarter campaign when i graduated to actually publish it and print it and everything which worked and was really great and so the the book has 55 synopses and then i did 10 of them for the exhibition that's on on the on the 10th at uh, no foundation so that's how it connects it was like the, the book exists as its own entity and then i've been using the book to create these drawings the synopses they you're also it comes across i don't know if this was intent this again we're going to touch meaning and dissect it a little bit now yeah but it, in a way it came across a little sarcastic is that how you were intending it because that's how i kind of interpret it a little bit like you're kind of like almost not making fun what's the more gentler way to put it but you you realize the absurdity yeah i love absurdity that's been something i've been in love with for about 10 years in terms of like artwork, there's a trope of artwork that's like based around absurdity. That's like a theme. Mm -hmm. And so as a, a student, you'll get, you could be tasked with creating a work that's absurd. And I loved those kind of uh, assignments. And so I think you're picking up on something that's really there. I do, um, I do like pulling out the absurd because of course, so for the synopses, I wasn't, um, I wasn't editing the texts. I wasn't changing the meaning of anything anybody said, but I was editing in terms of deciding what text would go in and what would go out. So if uh, some synopses could have had maybe like 20 lines, 
And in the final work, maybe only 10 of them are there. And so in that way, there is a lot of control because you can edit out all the boring stuff. And so, yeah, it's not exactly sarcasm, but it is um, it is poking fun at this very funny way that we judge. It's yeah. about judgment, really. Just like like the example I used, again, I can't remember the movie it was, but it was just that the fact that there was a naked statue. Yeah. And it was listed as a parental advisory. Like, be careful. This movie Look has out. nudity, but it's like of a stone but kind. Just, and there's <laughs> another one that has a statue. So two in two of the drawings, there are statues mentioned. And the second one is um, nude painting. A nude in a painting, that is. Yeah, or yeah. something yeah. like that. Like, all right, don't worry. Yeah. It's not a naked person painting. It's a painting of a naked person. Yeah. Because if it was a naked person painting, watch out. That would like, be, yeah. Then you're on you, the road to ruin. What are you going to do? Yeah. Then it's just like a gateway drug. What do you find in the appeal of absurdity, especially in something like this? Because like you were commenting on, this is our culture, right? Mm-hmm. Where we, for I guess for lack of a better word, are just prudish or kind of like almost... Def- trying to, like you said, defending the children or trying to protect them from naked statues. From naked st- Well, so that's the thing, right? I feel like I want to... I don't want to poke too much fun because there is... Like, I can understand that some people want to be particular about what they watch or or eliminate, like, certain things. Like, if you have a five-year-old, maybe you want to know about... Because because some of the stuff in the advisory is like yeah there's I, a lot of swears and or like I can get, I get it right like yeah. I get the practical application of it, um, but it is just I think uh, of it as this like wiki esque PTA meeting on the internet That's like a great it, way to put it, it goes to a friend of mine mm-hmm. I can't take credit for that a good friend of yeah. mine described it like that to me once and I thought that was the perfect nugget of how to synthesize what it is because it takes out all of the like real it doesn't it doesn't seem like super genuine concern right like if you want to know watch the movie before you show it to your kid or go on a hike with them instead of only sitting them in front of the tv i don't know i mean even just the idea of just of banning certain things what yes i understand there's uh, kids in age and whatever but also it's a good way to start the discussion too to show them something and then like leo let's talk about this let's, let's figure know. it out yeah yeah so it's like uh so i don't mind too much poking fun at it even though i can see like that it can have a use. Yeah. Um, it it becomes really exaggerated, right? Where it's like, yeah, seven F words and and three balderdash and like whatever, <laughs> yeah. right? It, it's really funny, but but that's why I like it and that's why I like the absurdity and the humor is because there's something very human there. Yeah. And that's something I'm really interested in right now is the way that the way that humor works. And so I think that humor is something that Okay, humor doesn't translate, right? If I if I translate my jokes into German or Italian or some other language, they don't work anymore. Right. And that's really interesting. And why why is that like that? Right? Because humans have humor. Whatever culture you're in, whatever language you speak, there's humor. This is a really good example. So I met this woman a few weeks ago who is an ASL interpreter, American Sign Language. Mm-hmm. And um, she was telling me that when you see... Uh, a deaf person being signed to and the hearing person makes a joke and the interpreter signs to them, they're signing, that's a hearing joke, just laugh, instead of signing the joke. Oh, really? Because jokes don't translate. And so it would take too long to explain both the joke that the hearing person made as well as the context in which that joke functions Yeah. than to just be like, 
hear and joke, just laugh, and then they can explain it later or whatever. Oh, like you're almost kind of ripping them off a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just not, I feel like um, humor is socially constructed and culturally constructed. And so it's within a set of very complex references that humor can really function, right? And you can see how some humor doesn't age well at all. Yeah, well, and it's also timing too, right? Because somebody will say something unintentional and if you can jump on it. Yeah, yeah, and so there are all these uh, all these nuances that are a, a way of, um, it's like a way of getting to pretend to be a sociologist a little bit mm-hmm. without having to have that job, of just getting to like, look at that yeah. and think about that. And so this is a way of like, Let's look at this like alarmist kind of culture that we have in a way without being um, in a way where we can look at it from a whole other angle where it's not polemic. It's not like this is my stance. And yeah. you know what I mean? It, yeah. It yeah. kind of opens it up instead of closing it down at the start. Exactly. Yeah. Because you you're taking away the because the main issue and the reason that they write it, like you said, is that they're worried that people are going to see this naked statue, or this naked painting, and then it'll just go downhill or whatever so you're taking away the pressure off of that almost and then more the actual culture itself but also i think that the people i think the people who are really going online and filling out the uh advisory Mm -hmm. are like a special subset of the population yeah i don't think that it's simply like concerned citizens i think it's also people who are like have an agenda or who have a lot of time on their hands like i think it's some kooks who are just like yeah let's count the swear words and post it more than being like I'm concerned being like, oh, there's this thing I can do and I'm bored and it's just like funny. Yeah. How do they count the swear words anyways? Because sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And what counts? Like if yeah. it's half, is that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or do you add those together, all the halves and yeah, then yeah, round yeah. up? I don't know. Yeah. No, it is. So, uh, yeah, it's a very funny culture. Does yeah. irony kind of fit into that as well? You didn't mention that. Is that kind of another layer? Yeah, irony is certainly there, I think. I mean, like, so the gesture itself is ironic using... Uh, using this user-generated uh, advisory to create a synopsis for a film as an act is ironic. And I always liked irony because it's like a way of um, duplicating meaning, right? So as soon as you're taking an ironic stance, maybe not as soon as, but once you're taking an ironic stance, you're able to kind of open up potential ways of, of interpreting something. And that always seems at least potentially productive and, and kind of interesting. But it's also just it's also just fun it is fun yeah you know it's pretty fun mm-hmm. yeah this gallery is on queen street the uh catherine so it's catherine Mulheron, but it's her project space called no foundation so there are two spaces so she has catherine Mulheron projects and just a few doors down is no foundation they're on queen west near dover court i think and you've been you've exhibited in her gallery before right or? it's not true no. no i um i've never shown with catherine before my last work in toronto was um I did a billboard for Mercer Union that was up last fall, so about a year ago. Um, and Mercer Union is one of the artist-run centers. So in in Canada, we're really lucky because we have a very strong artist-run center culture. And what that means is, um, those are galleries where things aren't for sale, where the board of directors are usually practicing artists, and um, it's an experimental space. So people can test out things without having to think about the bottom line or money. Mm-hmm. And a lot of really amazing um, artists start by having exhibitions in artist-run centers. Like, uh, they're very supportive for the whole Canadian art economy, I would say. Anyway, so Mercer Union is one of the artist-run centers I like very much here in Toronto, and it's the first time I had a real, anything real with them. Um, and so that was really exciting. And that was last fall. 
Um, but I'm, I haven't shown with Catherine before. I'm, I'm really excited to work with her. How did you get hooked up with her in that gallery in that space? It's, it's kind of a crazy story, actually. Um, so I, I just knew Catherine, like, socially, and not super well, but well enough. Like, she, we're just both part of the same community. And, um, and she had posted, we're, so we're Facebook friends. And so she had posted on Facebook one day last winter, I've got an opening at No Foundation. Send me a proposal if you have one, today only. And so I, I, had, um, I had been working on the Something in the Way video, and I had a rough cut on Vimeo that I had been sending to friends for feedback. And so I sent her that video and a few snapshots of sketches for the drawings and said, I, I'm working on these two projects. I think they go really well together. Let me know if you're interested. And that's how it, that's how it worked, was like a Facebook posting. It's very modern. <laughs> it's very modern. Yeah. Yeah, it's re- and it's... I think it's unusual. Like, I like it. But yeah. It's a very... Um, and I think... I'm still getting to know Catherine, but I think that that's very much how she is. It's just like she made a decision. She was going like, to be like, let's see what happens here today only. So it's like decisive, efficient. Yeah. She she seems she knows what she wants too, right? Like kind of like she's looking for something a little bit fun or something a little bit more different. Yeah, her space, she represents a lot of... Um, a lot of really awesome artists. So at Catherine Mulheron Projects, she has... A gallery here in Toronto, and she has a gallery in New York. Um, and she, so she represents a whole bunch of different artists. Like one is um, Dean Baldwin, who does a lot. Like everybody's really experimental, I would say. Um, yeah, and she's got a sense of fun in the people who are on her roster. Yeah. How did you get started into all this art world then? How did you get attracted to absurdity and irony and play? So when I was. Um, I mean, I knew I always wanted to go to art school and be an artist, but I think that's like a a lot of kids want to do that. So I knew like when I was in high school, I wanted to I wanted to go to the Etobicoke School of the Arts and I chickened out the day of the portfolio review. What? I did. Yeah. And then I went to high school where my best friend was going instead. But that's fine. And then I went to the University of Guelph. And so when I was in high school, I was going to be a painter. That was like my ambition was that I was going to be a painter. Any particular style? Uh, I hadn't figured that out yet. I just knew I wanted to to paint. And so, like, I liked a lot. I liked, um, like, German paintings from the 40s. But I also liked some more contemporary stuff. It was a real mix. Um, but then when I got to Guelph, you have to, for your major, you have to take at least one course that's, um, like, even if your major is painting, you have to take at least one course that's either, like, photography, new media, uh, I can't remember the others. And so I took the new media class, which was called Extended Media and is now called Extended Practices. And it really it changed my whole direction because it was the first time where I really knew why I was doing what I was doing. So when I was working on paintings, I was trying to develop my uh, technical skill. But beyond that, I didn't know why I was painting what I was painting. That was the only reason I knew I was painting. And I mean, I wouldn't have expressed this this way then, but we have cameras, and so with photography, if your only skill is to look like what you're painting, I don't, I'm not sure where to go. Like, at a certain point, okay, you've done it. So still life is really no life, I guess, for you? Well, no, I mean, I, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of all the painters I can think of right now who are contemporary who paint like that. Yeah. And so I feel like, no, I'm sure that they have more um, interesting practices than what I've minimized it down to. But for me, that... 
there was this moment when I was in extended media and the f- the first assignment in extended media was absurdity. It was make an absurd video. No, oh, so you're in your happy place. No, and so it, and it, as the course progressed and as the trajectory of the courses in that program progressed, I just felt uh, it just felt different and it felt right and it was something where I felt like I knew why I was doing what I was doing. I could explain it more easily, like what it was about or what was happening. And at the same time, it's like it became less concrete for other people. So like. I can make this text work and explain to you what it's about. Whereas other people are like, whenever it's like, oh, you're an artist. Like, so is your medium oil or mm-hmm. like what? Do you, and it's like, no, I don't paint. I might mostly do text-based works. And people are like, oh, what is like, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> so it's this funny thing that yeah. it's like, I know what I'm doing more and other people understand what I'm doing less. Is that how you introduce yourself at parties? My name is Liz. I'm an artist. No, or was that kinda... no, that's, I, I mean, because inevitably the, what do you do question comes up, right? So, you know, it really depends on who's asking how I answer it. So I'm an, I work in an administrative capacity for a ballet organization in Vancouver. And so if sometimes I'll just be like, oh, I'm an arts administrator, because I spent a lot of time in Toronto doing arts admin for the different, different galleries and organizations here. Um, but then if it's someone who, like, it just depends, right? And so sometimes I'll say like, oh, I'm an artist and whatever but i usually don't say like i'm an artist and i do this kind of work and some people some people do some people are like oh my name is this i'm an artist i'm represented here i make this kind of work but i'm i'm not as uh good at the self-promotion side of things and i i just i don't think i could wear that shirt very well that like hello my name is liz i'm a text artist it's nice to meet you <laughs> yeah like, oh i can't do it and yeah. i'm like, just like hey i'm liz good to meet you yeah and if we have a conversation cool then that can come up and it can be a bit more genuine feeling yeah but i don't know no, I, it just feels like someone with watches in their jacket you know what <laughs> i mean yeah like, yeah i guess but in your case it'd be like a whole bunch of paintings or images or something like that it'd be like uh, i don't know yeah. yeah like you know those um those letters from movies where you want to get your kid back and it's all cut and pasted of different pieces of text yeah. it would be a jacket full of those yeah that'd be pretty cool actually though <laughs> Well, I'll see what I can do. Okay. Invite me to some parties. Yeah. Okay. We'll work on that. How do you find the... Because you said you mentioned you go back and forth between Toronto and Vancouver. Mm -hmm. How are you finding the art scenes and the artists and that whole environment different between the two cities? Because I've been to Toronto and... Like, I've lived in Toronto and I've also been to Vancouver many times. Oh, yeah? And so I know the general vibe of Vancouver. It's very chill. It's a lot more Mm -hmm. laid back than Toronto, which is all a lot more rush-rush. It's really interesting. So I really... um, I studied in Vancouver. I did my grad work there. Um, and it, it is a really interesting comparative. The way that I have been describing it when I talk about this with peers is that uh, Toronto has... Uh, more people can have a smaller chance. And in Vancouver, way less people have a big chance. So it's like uh, some of the, the like biggest names in contemporary Canadian art many of them are from and of course there are exceptions but many of them are from vancouver so like stan douglas jeff wall ken lum jeffrey farmer these people are like the vancouver set and then even like some of the amazing women artists from canada liz magor elizabeth mcintosh mfana mcleod are there and i mean toronto has its big names you know we've got michael snow yeah. and we and that's just like one name in many yeah but but the biggest um the biggest, most Rodney Graham, right in Vancouver. The the 
the artists with the biggest international careers are mostly from Vancouver. Douglas but, Copeland. For yeah, example. but that pie is really small. Whereas in Toronto, there's just more, right? So there's there are more galleries. There's more grant money. There's more. There's just more. Does but the to, Toronto yeah. scene does the Toronto the, does do Torontonians like the art? Do they go to these galleries too, or is Vancouver right? What are they Vancouverites? Do they go? Do they go to shows? So yeah, people go. I mean, there's always. That's the weird thing about like now when I go to openings here, I don't know as many people. Like I used to know everybody. You know, you go and you even if you don't know them, like I know who people are and who they dated last and what they did to so and so. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but the scene is always kind of changing a little bit, and there are always um. The, there's always like an array. So it's not, there's like students and there's people who are in like more of like the corporate world who come and participate. Like there's a lot of variation within that world but at the same time i think that there are people who just dig contemporary art like that has to be your thing right so there the galleries in yorkville for example here in toronto that work is maybe more often a little bit more traditional if not in terms of like the year it was made in terms of the style and that work has a more clear uh, maybe that has a more clear audience like people are who are looking for a very um fine traditionally painted work nowhere to go but i think that there is an audience for um for contemporary work and people who like look that seek that out and i mean there's also a lot of it is people who are in that world but it's not only people in that world there are a lot of um so I used to work at the Canadian Art Foundation here in Toronto, um, and I work for an art collection cataloging company called MKC Consulting here, uh, between here and Vancouver. And so through those jobs, I've met a lot of different collectors. And so those people are coming from totally different worlds who are all in different ways invested in contemporary art as well. Yeah, so it's a range. And going back to your beginning and what uh what was some of the artists and stuff that got you interested in art because you initially said you wanted to be a painter i did want to be a painter i i loved kirshner when i was uh when i was in high school who else was i i was really into like i liked turner i liked william turner i liked <laughs> stuff that's really weird for me to think about now is like the stuff that i loved um just because it's so different from the stuff that i'm in, into now but just like yeah i was i was really into painting um when I was a teenager and then when I started at Guelph and mind you I was like 17 when I started at Guelph so I was still a teenager by the time I started doing like so it was video I started doing video work and then shifted and so I still do some video I was doing like predominantly video for maybe four years and now I do some video and a lot of text um but that was who was I who was I really into I, I loved Sophie Cal I loved Jillian Wearing. so Sophie Cal is someone who did, and I loved work from the 70s all of like the conceptualists from the 70s Robert Berry and Douglas Hubler uh yeah that that kind of but I mean like just so many different artists a lot of Canadian artists I really loved Ron Tirada when I was coming through school I was really into Rodney Graham when I was coming through school there was like a whole a whole lot of uh, of work that I was learning about and was a bit of a sponge. But like, so Sophie Cal is amazing. She's an artist from France, and she, um, like, she had a work at the Venice Biennale a few years ago called I think Take Care of Yourself, and she broke up with her partner, and he left her a note that said at the end of the note was like Take Care of Yourself, 
And so then she took the long letter that he had written to her and she had, I don't know how many women interpret the letter for her of what it really meant. And so the work is like all these video screens of all these different people interpreting her breakup letter. Um, or there was another where she found, a, I'm going to get this wrong, but she found like a phone book of a man. And so she called all of his friends in the phone book to ask them about him. And then she like constructed a portrait from what she learned about him. So that was kind of like my formative art training was stuff like that. That's cool. It's really cool. If you're not into contemporary work, yeah. you should look it up a little bit. It's it's pretty awesome. And nowadays, who are you into? Who makes you go, ooh? Who am I looking at right now? I'm really into Jeremy Deller right now. He's He was... Uh, I saw him at the Venice Biennale two years ago, and he was like the top for me. That was the best pavilion at the Biennale in uh, 2013. So he's someone who I've been looking at a lot lately. And who else have I been looking at lately? I've been um, I've been looking at Mafame McLeod a little bit more lately. She's a Vancouver artist who who I really like. I really like Dave Diamond's work. He's a Toronto guy who I'm always really inter- interested in his work. And I mean, he's someone who I know very well. Like I've helped him as in like a studio-ish capacity at different times. He does a lot of sourcing from the web also. But he's someone who, if you're listening in Toronto, you'll probably have a chance to see his work around. And he's really great. Yeah. Uh, like. The projects that you do work on, do you get to finish them all or is there ever like something that you just weren't able to finish or you have to put aside and then come back to or? Oh, no. Like of my own stuff. Yeah. Oh, I have a graveyard. Uh, this like word file that's like the idea graveyard. That's like a to-do list of like ideas. And for some reason, whenever I, so I keep this list as like things to keep thinking about or to try or whatever. And as soon as any idea goes into that stupid word file, it's like the end. Yeah. I don't know why, but but there are things that um, it's like when an idea is always in the back of my mind and bugging me, then I have to make that. And that's how a lot, like so that's like how synopsis came about. And even like the song meanings thing, I, I kept being like, there's some work there. Like I, I kept like I would read those sometimes because I thought it was funny when I would look up lyrics. I'd always be like, let's see what people say this is about and think it was really funny. And I was just like, oh, there's something here. And I know that it's here, but I don't know what it is yet. Um. So that's the stuff when it's something like that, that like I can't stop thinking about over usually a period of like a year or two, then I know I have to figure out how to make it whatever into something, how to make it something. Yeah. And is it for you, is it the process or the product? What's the more, because some artists really kind of stress Mm -hmm. the whole process. And like you just said, like you think about it for a year or two, you kick it around Mm -hmm. and then you kind of slowly get off the couch. You start, you know what I mean? (laughs) true. No, I, you know, process is really important. So I, there's, um, usually what happens is I create a method and it takes a while to like figure out exactly what the criteria is for that method. And then once that method is really made, then it's just a machine that data goes into and the work comes out. So for synopsis, it took a while for me to, to create my criteria of like what kinds of films I was going to pick, what kind of editing was allowed, what kind of editing wasn't allowed, what I was really aiming for. And then once I, and then I had to do all the research of all of like, I had like maybe like one or 200 film synopses in this file. And then I had to put it through that machine of like the rules. Mm -hmm. And then the works came out and I picked my favorite ones and made the book. But it was like most of the time was in like the research of the text, but like in constructing those rules. And then once that was done, the work was done it just had to be done yeah (laughs) yeah how did you pick the films then what was the impetus or what was the kind of boundaries you use 
Oh, I wanted the films to be like popular films. So I, I wasn't using uh, like particularly niche films or cult films. So like most of the time I, I'm staying away from like I'm using pop culture, but usually pop culture that's kind of um, maybe a little bit more like niche or cult. But this was like straight ahead um, and they had to be old. So I wanted it to be aged. I wanted it to be pop culture of which we already have hindsight because that makes it funnier, yeah. right? Because there's this patina. So the, the way that it really started was um, this is a, it's a wonderful life. So the It's a Wonderful Life synopsis or... Um, There's a parental guide for a wonderful life? Yeah, and it was the best one. So I had, <laughs> I had watched that film. One of my brother's partners, her family watches that movie every Christmas. And so I never... I mean, we didn't even have a TV when we were growing up. We got a TV when I was in like grade five or something and it never had cable. And so I've always been really fascinated with like the media because I always knew I wasn't getting the joke mm-hmm. and that the other kids were getting the joke because they had... Everybody had this shared set of references that came from that stupid box. Yeah. And so then, anyways, that's like a bit of a side preamble. So then we watched this film, but I never grew up watching stuff like that. So it was so boring. Yeah. My God, it wasn't like, like what, but I, I get it. I totally get like that. That's your tradition and you watch it and you love it. Um, but then one day I was like, I had been looking at, and I was like, oh, I wonder what the, uh, advisory says about that film and it was so funny it was the best one so it said it was like um a man is doing this a woman is doing that a child does this a police officer shoots a gun a man tries to kill himself somebody does this but it was just like a man a woman a child a this a that and this kind of staccato tone that was created by that kind of description was perfect and so that was where i that was the thing that made it like oh that's how i can do it just make it kind of staccato like that. If they're short lines, if they're expressive in that way, it's so funny. Mm-hmm. And it's so... Um, Absurd, too. Yeah. it's a wonderful life. It's so benign. Yeah. And so that was a really... Um, that was the one that, that made it like, oh, I get it. And so then I I was... One of the rules of things I like allowed myself was if someone had written, James Dean does whatever. Yeah. I could change it to... Um, a less specific pronoun. So I could say a man or a boy because it's too distracting when it says like Betty Davis lights a cigarette. Yeah. It's like, no, the Broadway star lights a cigarette or whatever. That makes sense. Yeah. You, it's strange though. You said like you didn't have TV for a little while and you didn't have those set of references because you do like, you just mentioned the Nirvana. You mentioned the contemporary movies. You had the, uh, I learned my history from the Simpsons. Yes. (laughs) The uh, bus billboard. Mm-hmm. Um, there is quite a bit of pop culture now and yeah. ca- uh, references is that kind of are you trying to play catch up or are you kind of now are you still outside looking in a little bit at this kind of almost like the ASL <laughs> you know what I mean like yeah. are you like ASLing the pop culture no I think I mean I'd love to say I'm on the outside looking in I don't think that that's true anymore like I th- I do feel but no but there is this weird gap so like a lot of the references that people have from being from when they were kids like I never watched those kids shows I'm aware of some of them or different stuff I think that that's where the fascination really started and so now I like mine that territory a lot and I think that maybe it allows me to to uh see humor in a lot of that stuff really quickly because it's like um maybe I'm like new to, I, it's a culture that I've been a part of for a long time but I'm still a newcomer in or something like yeah it's almost like uh, a Rosetta Stone, right? Because a lot of pop culture, you need to, like you said, you need to understand the references and like... To get the jokes. Yeah, yeah. and when to drop them and when is appropriate and those kind of things. 
Yeah. And yeah, yeah. but there's so many now because of the way that the internet is and everything like that. Everyone's watching mm. different shows. Everyone's watching. So the language is starting to spread. Yeah, and it's really interesting, right? Because what I would have guessed would happen at this point, where there's it's like um, the the method of distribution has been democratized. So if you're a little kid in rural Ontario, you can still access music that would have been impossible to access in the 80s. You would have had to come to the main city to see the, to see the show, to buy the record. Those shops would only exist here. Correct. Totally different now. Yeah. Super exciting. Woo! Everyone do the wave. But now <laughs> the hits are getting bigger. How is it possible that now the blockbusters are even bigger blockbusters than they were in the past? I would have thought that that would have that the money also would have been more dispersed. But I don't know if that's really happening. I think there's also... The blockbusters are getting bigger, I think, because there's also a more of a social pressure, too, now. To, what do you mean? To, back in the day, you had to keep current, right? So, But it was easier to keep current because there wasn't oh, any podcasts and there was only a handful of TV shows. Yeah, yeah. So you'd watch Simpsons, you'd watch The Cosby Show, you'd watch a couple other shows, Seinfeld or something, and then you were kind of done, right? <laughs> caught up for the yeah, week. Yeah, you were I'm caught good. up for the week. Right. You maybe read a Stephen King book, right? <laughs> that was all there was really in terms of popular culture. <laughs> now, because there's so much, right? Yeah. And so when something really big happens like Avengers or mm -hmm. Straight Outta Compton, everyone jumps on and is like, you got to see this, you got to see this. And it, and they start to use the language right away. It's really interesting. That, like, So I felt a lot of um, social awareness of like who I was what my look was like when I was a teenager like that was like a I was really thinking about those things right now I teach at Emily Carr occasionally and I taught at Guelph a year ago when I was here when I was back for a little bit and my students they don't care in the same way it's not as big of a thing for them it's like um to stay on top of all of it no 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 so it's like say I was a closet Miley Cyrus fan and I was a teenager right now if I was the teenager I was when I was a teenager 15 years ago, I would be embarrassed. I would be a closet Miley Cyrus fan. So it's You know what I mean? But those kids, kids today are like loud and proud about things that would have been embarrassing. Where it would be like, no, I'm, I'm into hard rock. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. So it's almost like they've gotten rid of the quote unquote the guilty pleasure. They're now they're just pleasure. It's just the pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I don't even know that that's necessarily bad. I feel like, yeah, if you like it, totally own it. Yeah. But... But I say that with reservation because I feel like, no, people were ashamed of that stuff for a reason. Yeah. And maybe we're just thinking less about those reasons. Yeah, I don't you, know. You do need, there There does need to be, it goes both ways. There needs to be a certain level of snobbery, right? Because you can't just go, because if there's no snobbery, then there's no standard, right? So then everything is just gets cranked out and it's just like pop music. It's almost like machine. Yeah. Right? But you need somebody who's going to sit there and make a good, a, measure. a good <laughs> solid song. And then you hopefully that if that good solid song, they sit and wrote it and they worked, they slaved on yeah. it and they put the right notes gets rewarded too because you want that to be re you want the people that are putting out quality to be rewarded as much as the the crap factory yeah yeah absolutely yes i agree so that's i mean that's very much like an armchair philosophy kind of uh thing i've been noticing i don't even know if it's accurate maybe i've just had a handful of students who were all like just no, don't care just, about the guilty yeah. Just they they like everything that there's. It's not as much of a thing like who you're into or or like having. Like there are a few who have a very like sculpted identity. Yeah. That's that's factored around the way that they consume culture and which culture they consume. But I feel like that was a bigger thing in the '90s than it is now. And I've, the early 2000s. yeah, I found for myself growing up a child of immigrant parents, so you get caught in this two world between 
the home country and then Canada. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to like, so you have some stinky food, some stinky ethnic food, but then also at the same time you're trying like having pie and things like, you know what I mean? So <laughs> you're stuck in this world and pop culture made a lot more sense to me because I understood the language, I understood the rhythm, I understood yeah. the fashion. And I'm like, I could leave both of those cultures behind and now I could adopt this. And it made sense. Oh, that's really cool. I never thought about culture that way. But that's, a, yeah, as like a, a thing that you can just become a part of and it can be your your home in a way. Yeah, all I had to do was like, watch, like I said, watch Simpsons, watch Seinfeld and like... Check off the list. Right. And then go through these bands and things like that. And it's like, all right, I know it. So and I can drop these references and like, um, and participate in the culture. The entry was really low, right? There was no mm-hmm. doorman or bouncer. Yeah. To participate in this culture. And then even doing what you're doing too, which is then on the flip side, which is then participating by creating mm-hmm. some of the culture. Well, that's the cool thing, right? So along with, and I feel like everybody knows this at this point, but along with the method of distribution being democratized, so has creation. I don't have to tell you. You sound like someone who's really into music. Yeah. And so you know as well as anybody else that now you can cut a record way easily, more easily than you could have. You could do with, it no pants in your bedroom now. Yeah, yeah, right? Which is how I think every record is now cut. Unless I missed, yeah. (laughs) So, so everything has really changed, and I think way more people are creators, at least on some scale, and and that's like an exciting moment. Like it's it's cool to you know how some people are like I'm an old soul. I'm from I feel like no I'm from right now. Yeah, like right now. Well, you 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 mentioned the Kickstarter. Like that's very that's something you didn't even have five years ago or whatever. So it's amazing. I mean, most artists would have to go to the old grants or sponsorships or those kind of... Or ask their family or take a third job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All the traditional, quote-unquote traditional, but now you have these opportunities. These other ways. Um, Patreon is another one that does a lot of work, right? Oh, what is it called? Patreon. I haven't heard of that one. Oh, Patreon is... uh, So, it's based on the old school um, art idea, which is that you get uh, patrons and they would support your art. And so, you basically, if... um, Let's say if I was doing it for this show... Uh, for every podcast, people then would have a certain amount of money they would be donating. So every month, I knew that every podcast I put out, I'd be able to pull in $100, whatever it is. Oh, cool. Right? Oh, that's uh, so there's a popular YouTube guy. I can't remember his name now. But he gets about five dollars to $7,000 every YouTube video that he drops. Wow. Because his com- his patrons have committed. So somebody will put in like $10, another person will put in 50 But yeah. it adds up so that at the end, every time he drops one... He gets five to seven thousand dollars, and he doesn't put ads on those videos because he's being supported in another way. Is that Correct. true? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. Okay, so it's not like yeah, it's mm-hmm. the old school. Um, again, just like the old like Salvador Dali, he had um, twelve patrons, and mm-hmm. so they would each get a month, and then out they would get the January guy would get to see everything that he did on February first, all he did in January, get to pick a piece, and then the rest Salvador Dali would have to sell and whatever. Oh, isn't that interesting? So I didn't know that. Yeah, That's funny. so it's like the old school method, right? So oh, just having cool. patrons. But yeah, and so there's a lot more opportunity. But then the question is then, are artists... Maybe getting rich is not the right word, but are they able to make a living? I think that's the better phrase. Because it doesn't seem like you either like kind of poor and struggling or on your way up, or you've hit it like super big. <laughs> no, it depends. There is in the middle. I mean, a lot of pe- people fund themselves in different ways, right? So... Some people teach, some people have day jobs, some people do sell enough work and get enough commissions and grants and things to make it work. That's a very small percentage of Canadian artists who can like survive by their work alone. I think, I think it's like 5% and that might be like a generous percentage. Maybe not, maybe that's accurate, but, but most people have, so like 
like I have a day job that's like two and a half days a week. I have this day job and every now and then I take a course on top and then I make my work. And so it's like, yeah, I'm surviving, but not only from my artwork. I need that. I need that day job. You know what I mean? But at the same time, I mean, I'd rather do that. For me, that's a model that works. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that there's a lot. And, a, and some, it really depends on where you're coming from, right? Like some people have more or less family support. Like I feel I'm really lucky because my family are very like supportive in terms of, so uh, my family are not, some people come from really wealthy families and it makes it, I think, or in my imagination, it makes it very easy for them to like afford materials and shipping and all these things. But who knows what kind of support they get from their families. That wasn't my situation. We don't have like a ton of money, but I was never pushed towards uh, a teacher's college. Like so many of my friends were. I was never told that I should like get a real job instead of just doing part time. The this. plan B. Yeah, it was never like that. And I feel eternally grateful because in like my undergraduate degree, so many of my friends were being pushed towards advertising or teachers college, especially by their families who were just like, OK, now you've done the art thing. You're in school for it. But now it's time to like get a real job. Yeah. I never had that. And I'm super grateful. That is nice and rare. Yeah, super rare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but and so you mentioned at the top of the conversation that you have your your group of five or a handful of people that you want to make sure that they, they're good and they're happy with your output. Well, it's more like those are the opinions that if they were negative, it would hurt the most. Right. Yeah. So on t- expanding from that, though, how are you defining success then when you have a new piece out or a new video out? Or how, how are you defining success? I mean, I think that... Is that a bad question to ask? It's not a bad question. No, I think that there's, I don't know how to, I feel like it's, it's one of those pathetic answers. So I don't know how to explain. It's like when, when it doesn't work, when it's only mediocre, you can kind of feel it. So it's almost like a stand-up comic. Like if he makes a joke and nobody really laughs. Well, no, it's, I think it's a little bit different than that. Well, no, maybe it's not different. I love stand-up comedy. It's like one of something I really love is uh, comedians. So I feel like my imagination says that a comedian knows when a stand-up joke, when a joke is good and the audience isn't getting it, and so he needs to improve something about his performance because that's a good joke, and when the joke just was bad. Yeah. And I feel like there's, like, the same thing. Like, at this point, I know when an idea is actually good and just needs to be delivered better, but I can't tell you what the criteria is. Yeah, I, I can't give it to you. I can just feel the difference. So there are some works where I'm like, no, that was a super good work, and... um and I hope that I show that work more because that's a really good work, even if it has never gotten very much attention. And then there are other works where it's like, oh, that got so much attention. And isn't that funny and ironic? And I'm like, oh, who knows? It's just life. Because that's a work that's fine, but it's not my like best work. But that's the one that's getting the most hype or whatever. So is, it's, yeah, it's just. Is a, that part of also the, I guess, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess the benefit of working in a digital medium, like you mentioned the Nirvana video, you can potentially keep digitally editing that for like. Forever. Forever, yeah. As long as you, or keep tinkering. Well, I don't know. I mean, for me, it's like, no, that work is done. Like I finished it, I cut it. It's, it's going to be for sale at the gallery. And that edition is that version. That's like, that's the work. And I'll tinker on something else. But I think that for everybody that's different. Like um, maybe that's why I would would have been a terrible painter. I don't know. But um, but for me it's sort of like you do it and it's done. And then if you need to do better, well then do a new project and do that better. 
you can let it go. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's like, uh, I think it's like that for writers also. Like for writers, I've heard writers talk about having like a deadline and it's like, you'll edit it forever unless there's a deadline. And if you have to hand it in, then it gets handed in and it's done. And I feel like the same thing. So it's like there's a, usually I have like a deadline for works that's some, something real, whether it's an exhibition or, pardon me, or something. And for me, I'm able to like make that real in my like reality. That's like real and it's done. Next. Okay. I guess. So the, the gallery opening is September 10th. It's Thursday. Yeah. Yeah, Thursday the 10th. Yeah. And uh, there's two pieces. Uh, One is synopsis Mm -hmm. and the other one is. Something in the way. And that's the Nirvana video. Yes. And um, do you know when it goes to? I think I wrote it down. Uh, uh, October 11. Yeah, that's right. The 11th. So, so to it, the 11th. So there'll be like day hours for the exhibition from September to October 11. September 11 to October 11. Okay. Yeah. And uh, yo, so thank you for coming in. You mentioned you like a lot of stand-up comics. Before I we, do. Cl- who do you like? Who who, do ma- I like? Who, who tickles your funny bone? Um. So I like a lot of like the okay. So Jerry Seinfeld is like my first love. Yeah, you know I I was always still got Seinfeld. it. Yeah, I think he's really great. I yeah. really like Seinfeld. Um, I've I've been really into Louis C.K. Even though he's like a bit intense sometimes. Mm-hmm. He's someone who, um, oh, what's her name? Amy Schumer. I've I yeah. just started watching a little bit of Amy Schumer, and she really made me laugh. I I liked her a lot. And there's a woman named Amanda Bynes who was pretty funny too. There's this guy, and I can't remember his surname, but his first name is Nore. He's really young. He's pretty green, but I feel like in in a few years he's going to be really awesome. And I just can't remember his surname. And who else? I like some of the older comics too, like sets from like the '80s. Like George Carlin, maybe or sort of. Yeah, Carlin is okay. I can't remember. There's this one guy who's so deadpan. Stephen Wright. Yeah, and he kind of makes me crazy. Like, I kind of hate him, but I still watch it sometimes, so I think that maybe I kind of like him, too. Yeah, yeah, he was the one who's like, uh, my friend has a uh, trophy wife. It wasn't first place. Yeah, he's there's. <laughs> so, it's just like I just want to kill myself when yeah. I listen to him, but I still do it, so there's yeah. something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. You think you ever will do some sort of way, like mi- remix or mashup? Some bits of stand-up comedy or jokes? <laughs> I, or? I've thought about a comedy karaoke. That's the closest I've come. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. Be pr- but the, see, this is what's amazing about comedy karaoke, right? You'll ruin your career. I'm a white girl. If yeah. I get up and try to do Chris Rock jokes... Oh, yeah, that's true, yeah. That's the end of my life. Uh, yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Or, I mean, it's funnier with, I think, um, a kind of gender politics. So, like, I could get up and do Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. And then it would be like, it it would that would make him look more like a creep, yeah. In a way, so I think, and that's what's so interesting, right? It's all about those power dynamics. It like is a way of uh, opening up those power dynamics in a really funny way. But I haven't figured out how to make it work because as actual karaoke, I, it wouldn't work. Um, but as an idea, I think it's awesome. <laughs> it is an awesome idea. Is that in the graveyard too? Not though? yet. It's going. It's on its way. Oh, it's not there yet. You got to work on that. <laughs> Well, thank you for visiting my summer lair. Uh, we covered uh, the Kickstarter. We covered the new stuff, the uh, art gallery coming up. We covered art, which In is general. pretty, yeah. yeah. Big, big, uh, big hour. A big hour. Was there anything else we should have covered or anything you wanted to? No, I think I think that, thanks, Sammy. It was fun to be here. Yeah, it was fun. So we'll have to have you back in, I think you said, 50 years or so? Yes, 50 years. It's in my calendar. Okay. And then we'll see what happens. <laughs> thanks, Liz. Thanks.